Welcome to Beyond Blathers, the podcast where we dive deeper into the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. I'm Sophia Osborne. And I'm Olivia DeBersier. And if you want to support the show, check out our merch store over on Etsy at etsy.com slash shop slash beyond blathers. So today we are finally getting back to the dinosaur grind. I don't think we've done a dinosaur since we had Evelyn on. Yeah. And that wasn't even really a dinosaur, so. Yeah, like last time we had a fossil, so. This one also isn't a dinosaur, but <laughs> oh, it is a fossil. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, I, we, I've, we we've gone in blind here for Sophia, so this is in like the mammal hall in the game. You know how they have like oh, okay. the rhino looking thing? That's what this is. And honestly, researching the fossil episodes is so much fun because you end up digging up so much like weird info. And I feel like we just don't get that so much with the living organisms. And maybe it's because people don't want to like gossip as much about like coworkers. <laughs> <laughs> like no one's got like really inflammatory biographies written about them. So maybe in like 30 years. Yeah, when the like contemporary animals are prehistoric, there's going to be a lot of tea. But until then. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Okay, well, let's dive into it. So if you bring a Megacerops fossil to Blathers, he'll say, This large fellow was a bit like our modern rhinoceros, but with two horns on its nose. Sadly, their small teeth restricted them to a diet of rather soft plants, and eventually they died out. I feel there is a valuable lesson to be had about learning to enjoy a variety of foods. <laughs> that was really short and sweet. <laughs> yeah, he turned this into like a dieting lesson. Eat a variety of things. Half your plate yeah, should be he vegetables. Said omnivores. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, short and sweet and like pretty much right, but also not really. So the Megacerops lived 38 to 33.9 million years ago during the late Eocene. And the first thing we just have to get out of the way right off the bat is that despite their appearance, they are not the ancestors of or even really close relatives of the rhinoceros. It's hard to believe it, especially because if you look at them, they really do look like rhinoceros. They're really big. They've got that big horn on their nose. And like, they're just like broad, buff looking animals. And honestly, I thought this episode was going to be about the woolly rhinoceros. Because just looking oh. at the skeleton, I thought it was basically a woolly rhino. I had no idea what it actually was. But we'll get into what it is a little bit later. Let's talk about the Megacerops right now and like how it looked and everything like that. So they were about rhino-sized, if not quite a bit bigger. In some places I read, they were like the size of a forest elephant, which is basically like a small African elephant, which is massive. Like that is a really big animal. And that horn that Blathers is talking about is this sort of big slingshot shaped horn on their nose. Like it's got like, yeah, like sort of a Y shape to it. And alongside they, that, they have very thick, heavy necks to hold that horn up and to support their head. But that thing that I'm calling a horn, it's not really a horn because horns are made up of keratin and they grow on top of bone like a sheath. Whereas in Megacerops, the horn didn't have blood vessel markers, which could indicate that there was like a keratinous sheath on top of it. Keratinous sheaths don't tend to fossilize very well, if at all. 
But in this case, the whole thing did fossilize and it's bone. So there is also evidence of secondary bone growth on these horns, which suggests frequent damage to them. So it was probably just a big chunk of bone covered in skin. But for this episode, I'll call them horns for simplicity. They're a little bit more accurately like I read like giraffe horns. They aren't really horns either, but they're just sort of those protrusions from their head. Okay. Blathers said that they have two horns, but it's more like they have like one that's Y-shaped, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. It depends. Like I think they're a genus, so I think most of them had like a similarly shaped horn, but I think there's some, there's definitely some variety. But most of the photos I saw were, yeah, the Y-shaped. Okay. And so what did they use the horn for? Probably not actually as a slingshot, I would imagine. I wish. I can imagine that in like the crudes or something. But yeah, yeah so <laughs> paleontologists have found quite a few fossils of this animal. So they've been able to identify males and females that have very clearly different sized horns. So this indicates that the horns were likely used in part to fight with other males of their species for mating rights to females. So it was probably in part display, in part intimidation. And they were probably, like, using it in actual combat with other males. So this idea is also supported by their strong neck muscles, which may have given them the strength and support to smash against other megacerops. There's another bit of, like, maybe evidence towards this, and that's based around a particularly good and complete fossil of megacerops on display at the American Museum of Natural History. That fossil of a male megacerops has, like, a very distinctly cracked rib, which may have been caused by combat with a male. It may also have just been caused by many other things, but that's one idea. Paleontologists can tell that those neck muscles were really strong because if you look at the fossil, they have very tall neck vertebrae. So there's lots of room for, for muscles to attach and just give them that, that support they need to like headbutt each other, similar to maybe how bighorn sheep would have. Now, females also have horns. They're just a little bit smaller and may have been used to protect themselves and their young. The other interesting thing the horn and the head bashing suggests is that they were probably social creatures because if we look at animals today that compete like megacerops, they would have likely been living in herds. And so you mentioned that the megacerops aren't, you know, a rhinoceros or an ancestor of the rhinoceros. So what exactly are they then? <laughs> so they are odd toed ungulates. And that is kind of a loaded term, so let's break it down. The first thing is that it's an ungulate. Ungulate refers to an animal with hooves. And also, if you're being, like, inclusive in that group, you would also include dolphins and whales because their ancestors had hooves. But generally, when people say ungulate, they really only mean hooved animals. But it's very weird to think of because, like, I'm someone who's worked <laughs> at a zoo and we referred to the ungulates a lot. It it's weird for me to think of dolphins as ungulates. <laughs> they yeah. just seem like very different animals. That's so fun. Yeah. So within ungulates, there are two groups. There's the even-toed ungulates and the odd-toed ungulates. As the name suggests, they're grouped by the number of toes they have. Right. That makes sense. Hooves will look different in different creatures. 
in horses, they have single toes. So it's basically one large toe that's covered in a big hoof. In deers, you can see distinct toes and they're mostly covered in hoof, if that's like a word. Um, and then in <laughs> things like rhinos, you can just have a small hoof covering their three toes. So it's it's one of those things, I guess, like that seems innate, like, yeah, these animals have hooves, but if you actually look at their hooves, you'll see that they're like composed differently depending on the organism. What's interesting mm. about this group in modern time is that the non-domesticated odd-toed ungulates, which include tapirs, rhinos, and wild horses, are basically all severely endangered, and if not endangered, then severely threatened. And I think that's really interesting because if you go over to the even-toed ungulates, you have things like, you know, anything that's like cow-related, so like bison or buffalo, and then you've got like all the goats and all the sheep. Deer is a big group. And obviously there's endangered and threatened species there as well. But it's interesting that unfortunately, all of the odd-toed ungulates are just having a really bad time right now. But if we go back to the time of the Megacerops and their relatives, which is like 56 to 35 million years ago, they were very diverse and widespread. They were everywhere. We aren't exactly sure where these odd-toed ungulates fit in their family tree. It's just kind of messy and unclear. They seem to be convincingly in their own separate lineage. Like they're not, yeah, like I said, they're not ancestors to rhinos. They might be kind of more closely related to horses. But yeah, the, the taxonomy is not super clear there. It's a little bit weird. The important thing to remember is that they're extinct now. There's none of them left. None of their descendants are left as far as we know. So the Brontotheridae could have been as large as elephants. Some were small like dogs. There was quite a bit of variety there. Some of them had the horn-like structures like Megacerops, but others had no horns. And some even just had like these large bony lumps on their noses. Oh, I love the idea of like dog-like little ungulates. I don't know. That's very cute. They're very cute. And if you look at photos of them, they're like a cross between a dog and a horse. They're kind of oh my like squat little guys. It was so funny, too, because I'm looking at a picture of them and then I see my dog run by and he's like uh, American, or he's like a, an Australian cattle dog cross and he's very like stocky. And I was like, oh, they look like you, Jasper. Like they're just <laughs> kind of got this like squatness to them and these little toes Aww. like a dog. Honestly, like a cross between a dog and a horse is my dream animal. <laughs> yeah, they're. They look really adorable. Like, and some of them ha like are drawn with spots on them, which makes them even cuter. <laughs> even though, though I know like the spots are hypothetical, but but they totally could have had spots. Yeah, we don't know. They were living in forests. They probably had to camouflage because they look very much like prey. And so you were saying that they were very widespread. Could you talk a bit more about where they were found? Yeah. So the fossils of them are mostly found in the states, like Canada, like. Basically North America and then in Asia and then there's some specimens in Europe. But they, they were pretty widespread. I mean, one paper I found talked about early Eocene brontotheries being found all the way up in Ellesmere Island in Nunavut. So they were, yeah, going way up north. And it's just so cool because, you know, even back in the day, it was like kind of chilly up there. Like not this, not nearly the same as now because back then... It was kind of this marshy delta area. And Ellesmere Island is a very interesting place paleontologically because you find fossilized land tortoises, snakes, monitor lizards, and crocodilians. So 
it's hard to imagine that now because it's basically, if you imagine on a map, the point at which all the islands of Nunavut kind of connect with the top of Greenland, like that's that's how far, far north we're talking about here. This is also the place that Tiktaalik was discovered, which is that amphibian-like early terrestrial animal, like one of the first terrestrial animals. So, or vertebrates, I should say. It was a pretty like lit place to be. Yeah. And like throughout history, because like Tiktaalik was way, way back. But then even, you know, I can't remember exactly when this fossil was found, but like, let's say like 50 million years ago, you're going to start finding some interesting things up there that require a more warm, temperate area. So I think it's, I, I imagine like if Nunavut felt like Florida, <laughs> which is weird to think <laughs> about. So, you know, at this time, like the world was pretty, pretty warm, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But I wanted to talk about the history of the Brontotheres. So historically, all those old school paleo guys, Marsh, Leedy, Cope, and a guy called Henry Fairfield Osborne, they were all really into Brontotheres. They got a lot of attention at the time, especially by Osborne. So Joseph Leedy was the first to describe Brontotheres fossils to Western science. And Brontotheres fossils were among the first fossil vertebrates from the Western states to be described. So they were kind of a big deal. And then Lady didn't have a lot to go off because the fossils were pretty minimal at the time. But then Cope and Marsh ended up finding some skulls and they got to describe those. Marsh was the first one to recognize them as odd-toed ungulates. So that was a pretty major discovery at that point. Yeah, so going back to Osborne, he was really into them. And he was a very big deal scientifically in like the late 1800s, early 1900s. But unfortunately, his research hasn't held up well. Or maybe not unfortunately, like unfortunately for him. (laughs) But in the case of Brontotheres, he was a big believer in orthogenesis. And that really messed with, that just like influenced all his research so much that all his research on Brontotheres is just pretty much moot. Like it just really, he he described a lot of species, but he would just like over divide and over overname species, basically. And so now we're like going back to all this stuff and and paleontologists are like, that's one species. We're going to group all these guys into one species. So he was really like, you get a species, you get a species. Like, <laughs> Yeah. So orthogenesis, though, I should talk about what that is. It's an inaccurate view of evolution where natural selection is not the driving force behind evolution. Instead, organisms are all evolving in a definite direction towards some greater goal. So this idea came after Darwin. And in a lot of ways, it was sort of a way for like super religious creationist type people to feel as though there was like a greater purpose behind evolution beyond randomness and just like happenstance. So for Osborne, he was really into this idea. And then he also made up this term aristogenes, which were apparently genes that would work in the body of the organism towards those goals. So it was sort of like this this wonderful, like amazing gene that would like be the mechanism behind all these bodily developments. Now, the word aristogenes gave me like eugenics vibes. And guess what? He was the co-founder of the American Eugenics Society. So he was um super duper racist and very into eugenics. So there were a lot of, not only was he a bad taxonomist and caused a lot of problems that way, but he was a eugenicist. He was also the president of the American Museum of Natural History. So interesting. I 
No, his last name is Osborne, but I I reject him. <laughs> yeah. It's not spelt the same way, so. It's without an E, so. Yeah. I wonder, do you know if Aristogenes comes from, like, Aristotle? I'm not sure. I got the sense that it was from, like, aristocracy, like, some sort of greater character. But I don't mm. know. It might be. It might be. It was just sort of one of those things that it was like a red flag as I was reading it already. And then I saw the word Aristo and I just thought it was like the greater race genes or something. I just looked it up and it's, yeah, it's from like Aristos, which is Greek for best, like in ancient Greek. So it's like best gene. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, that's interesting. But yeah, so that's that's the like history of the Brontotherids, and I think it's kind of an interesting one. Right, and so could you talk a bit about, I guess, what ended up happening to them and why they went extinct? Was it, Blather said it was because they <laughs> could only eat like soft vegetables? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like Blather said, it probably does have something to do with diet. Mammal teeth can tell us a lot about an animal. It's one of the Brontotheridae's distinguishing features, actually. These teeth are very broad, they're blunt, and they have a W shape, kind of in the, like, flat top part of the the molar. And those teeth are likely best for chewing soft stems and leaves. Like rhinoceros and tapirs today, they may have had, like, a fleshy, muscular, prehensile lip to sort of, like, pick out and browse food. They may have also had a long tongue. Yeah, so their whole body was probably pretty well adapted to eating those kinds of things. And then when the climate began to get colder and drier, the grasses and other tough vegetation started to spread and the soft foods of the Eocene disappeared. Thus, the Brontotheridae just sort of ran out of food and died. And they all just went extinct. Oh. Oh. Sad. One last thing I wanted to mention about about the Brontotheres is that their name is derived from the Greek meaning thunder beast. And that name, so like, this is kind of like jumping a few etymological steps here, but that name thunder beast seems to have a history with the Sioux people, an indigenous group in North America. And they told stories about massive creatures that once roamed the earth. Now, I wanted to read, I found this really good paper or an interesting paper. And I wanted to read a part of it because I think it's a really interesting discussion about how Indigenous oral stories can tell us a lot about how much paleontological knowledge Indigenous people had and have. And so I just remember the first time when I went up to Whitehorse, we were told about all of these, like, yeah, all of these oral stories that had been passed on about giant beavers and all of these different creatures from basically like the what we would think of as the ice age and like how many fossils were being found and how that just got integrated into all these oral stories and I just thought it just like totally changed the way I thought about paleontology and colonization so um, I just wanted to read this excerpt because I think it might do the same for our listeners Now, this paper is called Place Names Describing Fossils in Oral Traditions by Adrienne Mayer. She's a folklorist, so she studies, yeah, I guess stories in different cultures over time. So there are parts of this excerpt I don't think are, like, worded super well, but 
I'll read it as it is. And the storyteller and main source of this information is James LaPointe of the Lakota. So it starts with the title, The Racetrack. The Black Hills of South Dakota is an area surrounded by masses of vanished creatures from many eras, from dinosaurs and pterosaurs to mammoths and the Thunder Beasts. The Sioux name is preserved in the scientific name Brontotherium, a rhino-like behemoth. A curious geological depression also encircles the Black Hills. This broad valley of red siltstone erodes from the greenish Morrison formation sediments just inside a steep ring of Cretaceous hogback ridges. The racecourse-like depression rimmed with prolific fossil beds is called the Red Valley by geologists. The feature was also noticed by the Lakota, who called it the Big Racetrack. The tradition of the Big Racetrack was recounted by the Lakota storyteller James LaPointe. In the first sunrise of time before the existence of the Black Hills, all the immense and strange creatures, including the Unke Gila, or dinosaurs, were summoned for a great race. A seething mass of animals covered the land. The earth shook under the pounding feet of beasts, and the sky turned dark with circling birds. Around and around the animals raced, and as the weaker creatures were trampled, the earth beneath began to sink crazily under their weight. A huge mound began to bulge in the center of the racetrack. The rising mountain burst, spewing fire and rocks, mixing the cloud of dust thrown up by the feet of the running beasts. The animals were felled by rocks and smothered in ashes and debris. The remains of the great racetrack are still visible in the Red Valley, around the Black Hills, and the bones of all the beasts in the racetrack for survival lie buried where they fell. In fact, the Black Hills were formed during the Cretaceous and into the Miocene, when intense volcanic activity and tectonic forces violently uplifted a 346-meter dome of granite rock, and then rapid erosion ate away the ash and soil atop and around the dome. In the Lakota legend of the racetrack, careful observation of geological landforms and fossils and mythical explanations can yield surprisingly accurate perceptions in anticipation of modern geological and paleontological knowledge. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, there's a few... It bothers me that she says, like, surprisingly accurate perceptions, because that just feels yeah. a little pretty condescending. But I do think... I wanted to read it because I don't... I don't like to tell the stories of Indigenous people when it's not, like, my story. So I like that she had, like, a pretty much exact description of what James LaPointe said, because that's the important part here, about, yeah, their stories about what happened in their home thousands of years ago, millions of years ago. I love that image, too, of the racetrack. Yeah, and I think it's important for when we're talking about a decolonized view of science to, like, understand it, you know, if you've been raised with a Western view of science, like sometimes I think having it put in context of like, these are the stories and look how accurate they are when you actually look at what our Western science has said. They're both matching up in many ways. So I think it's helpful, like when you're first learning about different forms of knowledge, why other vo forms of knowledge can be just as valid and are just as valid. So yeah, totally. And yeah, just to giving that context of like, it's not like indigenous people never noticed fossils and then suddenly like Western paleontologists came and discovered all the fossils. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's that's why like repatriation and like involving indigenous communities in paleontology is so important because it's like this is their land and 
Mm-hmm. It's not like they were like, oh, wow, we had no idea all of this stuff was here and we've just been hanging around for thousands of years and never noticed. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, it's very, yeah, it's a, an important thing to remember in every paper you read and every time you go to a museum. Totally. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, so that's the Megacerops. It's got a really rich history. And even though there's not a ton of info on the animal itself, I think it's really an amazing looking creature and always fun to talk about mammals because we rarely get to talk about them on the show. Yeah, that's true. We don't get to talk about like ungulates a lot, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, I guess we-, we talked about the mammoths and the, yeah, mammoths, but they aren't even ungulates. They're like in their own group. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Olivia. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Don't forget to check out our merch store at etsy.com slash shop slash beyondblathers. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at beyondblathers. And check out our TikTok, beyond underscore blathers. Tune in next week to learn more about the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. Bye. Bye. Bye.